0: We tend to think about creativity as these sort of flashes of brilliance that happen, these moments that come out of nowhere. And indeed, that is often the case that when you noodle on something and you have lots of expertise and you work on it, you're in the shower and you have your idea. But some of a creative process is you just bang on the thing over and over again. You come up with many, many, many solutions.
1: Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness, but I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you are ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living this interview is for anyone who wants to be a better leader who wants to communicate more effectively who wants to use humor well to inspire others to get what they want maybe to win arguments but also for benevolent reasons today my guest is peter mcgraw peter is an academic who has studied humor extensively he was fascinated by the question what makes things funny in fact he gave a ted talk by the same name, and in that talk, he shared what he learned after taking a two-year, 91,000-mile global search for what makes things funny in different places around the world, and he put his findings into a book called The Humor Code. He went to Tanzania, Scandinavia, Japan, Israel, Peru, and other places in North America. Peter also conducts experiments at the Humor Research Lab, something he founded, also known as HURL. He has written for Slate, Wired, Fortune, The Huffington Post, and his work has been covered by The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, Time, CNN, The Atlantic, and The Harvard Business Review. He's spoken at Harvard, Stanford, Cambridge, and Fortune 500 companies. You get the idea. So the guy's been around the world. He's talked to some of the biggest companies and universities. As a behavioral scientist, his research spans the fields of judgment and decision-making, emotion, affect, mood, and behavioral economics. He has a podcast called I'm Not Joking and another called Solo, The Single Person's Guide to a Remarkable Life. The book that is the subject of today's interview is his newest book, "Stick to Business, what the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. In this interview, we explore something he's co-created called the benign violation theory. If you feel at all stuck in your job, or you're entrepreneurially minded. We talk about how to be more creative, how to come up with better ideas, whether you're brainstorming alone or in a group. We also, as I've said in the intro, we talk about how to use humor to be a better leader and how to not use humor to avoid being a not so good leader. With that, I would just say, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Peter McGraw. Peter, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Brilliant. It's so nice to be here. I have to tell you, your name is one of my favorite words.
1: Oh, it is. Well, thank you. Yes. You know, I I appreciate you saying that. (laughs) I'm going to ask you my favorite question for Uber drivers. What's life about?
0: Okay. So you must knock some Uber drivers over with that question because they're used to getting questions about the weather and traffic and what it's like to be an Uber driver. Yeah. And where they're from. And where they're from. Yeah, Yeah, indeed. So I don't think that there's any one thing that life is about. I think there's a false premise behind the questions about the meaning of life. I think that there are meanings to life. I think life is about lots of things and it's about doing lots of things and it's about walking, about people walking different paths depending on what's the right path for them. I could go into a lot of detail about this, but I think that's an important idea. I think in a world where you can open up Uber Eats and there are 50 different varieties of food you can choose from, mm-hmm. and then within each variety of food, there are 50 different restaurants that you can order from, yeah, that there's a little something for everyone. And in the same way, there's not one good meal for all people. There's not one good life for all people. But I think the trouble with the world is it's not easy to find your path. It's not easy to find your about. And we have to kind of stumble around a little bit. And we can't always rely on other people's opinions and views to guide us to the right path. We have to discover it. A lot like the Buddha by going out into the world and tussling with it.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that answer. And I think that has a different, that lands with me differently, knowing that you traveled, you and your co-writer traveled 91,000 miles around (laughs) the world in search of what makes things funny. Yes. But I imagine along the way, you probably learned a lot about what makes for a good life as well. And maybe we can start there. Will you tell me Why did you travel 91,000 miles?
0: Okay, so I was kind of like, I'm sort of a run-of-the-mill academic prior to studying humor. That is, you know, I taught my classes, I wrote my research papers, I wrote them on topics that I thought were important, maybe not always provocative, but important. And then I stumbled on this question of what makes things funny. And I stumbled on it at exactly the right time in my career. You know, this idea of timing matters. You know, you can be too early, you can be too late. And if I had been too early with the humor work, I would have just accepted what everybody else believed about the previous humor research, which goes mm-hmm. back 2,500 years, mm-hmm. because I would have been too new and naive, and I just would have been like my undergrads who say, is this on the exam? And then they just write down exactly what I say and then regurgitate. It. If it had been too late, I wouldn't have had the energy, and I wouldn't have had the bravado to risk it, so to speak. And so what I did was I started small. I wrote a paper about it with a very bright graduate student who went on to become my collaborator on almost all of my academic work there. His name is Caleb Warren. But around that same time in my career, I was making a decision. I had a feeling that I probably wasn't going to have a traditional life. That is, I wasn't going to become a family man in addition to my profession.
1: How did you know that?
0: experience you know what I mean like I just I sort of by that point I was in my late 30s I kind of knew that I didn't want to have kids and then once I knew that I didn't want to have kids then a sort of traditional marriage just didn't seem to make a lot of sense for me yeah and what I was seeing around me was how difficult people's middle years are because they're trying to do a bit of everything yeah but I also didn't want my middle years to be boring because I just was doing my career yeah And so I just started thinking a little bit about what could I use my extra time, money, and energy for that might make my life better Mm -hmm. in the same way that someone else uses their time, money, and energy to raise children in order to make their lives better. And so I had decided that I was going to leave the university in spirit. That is, I was going to become much more of a public, outward-facing, intellectual type. But I didn't know exactly how to do that. And I realized very quickly that the humor stuff was the way to do it. The problem was... I didn't have 10 years or 20 years of experience studying this where I could take my ideas and put them out there in the world in this sort of easily accessible way. Mm -hmm. And so my first book, The Humor Code, was a response to that. It wasn't going to be an opus. You know, it was going to be an exploration. And so I teamed up with this journalist, Joel Warner, inquisitive fellow who's, I think, also yearning to get out of the house. He is a family man. And... What we decided to do was to tussle with these questions out in the real world. And my argument was, I needed my laboratory. I have a laboratory called the Humor Research Lab, a.k.a. Hurl. We need to run these experiments and to test the sort of causal effects that are out there in the world. We couldn't behave like philosophers That was a lot of the problem with the research on humor was it had its roots in philosophy and thought experiments. It had to move into the social sciences and real experiments. But as you know, anything as complex and mysterious as comedy, you can't just interact with it in a lab. Labs aren't funny places. You need to go to funny places to do that. And so the book was this part pop science, but also part travelogue in which I got to discover and learn while also teaching. And that's the flavor of the book. And the idea essentially is you need to go 91,000 miles if you want to get the full scope of comedy in the world.
1: Yeah, and you truly did go international, right? You spent time in Tanzania.
0: We were in Tanzania. We investigated a alleged laughter epidemic in the early 60s. We went to the Amazon with Patch Adams and 100 hospital clowns to try to answer the question, is laughter the best medicine? We went to the West Bank. We went to Palestine to look for humor where you least expected. Went to Japan to try to figure out these crazy Japanese game shows that are just so perplexing to Americans, but beloved to the Japanese.
1: And then you made your own game show as well. How much of that experience informed what you do?
0: Oh, yeah. Wow. You've done your homework on this. I'm impressed. So yes, I created a comedy game show called Funny or True. I've done it as a live theater show. And I did it in part because I think that is important. You know, there's a saying about teachers, those who can't teach. Yep. And so I thought if I really, really want to understand comedy, it really helps to make it. Yeah. And so I've done some improv, I've done some stand up, I'm taking a sketch writing class at the moment, but I created this comedy game show. And I have to tell you, it was a great experience. It was really
1: wonderful. It sounds fun. And can I find episodes online? You know, there is
0: on my YouTube channel, you can find one episode at the Westside Comedy Theater in Los Angeles, and it features a chemist, a sex researcher, And then two prominent stand-up comics, Alonzo Bowden from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You probably know from him. He also was on Last Comic Standing. And then Neil Brennan, who is co-creator of Chappelle Show. And I have the great privilege of hosting that show. It's a fun
1: fun example of it. That is fun. I want to go back to the thing you said about, what's a laughter epidemic? What is that about? Well, okay. So the stories
0: of this laughter epidemic is that it started in like a boarding school a religious boarding school with these young Tanzanian girls, like tweens. And that they were having these fits of laughter that was spreading throughout the school. It was uncontrollable. You know, it basically shut the school down and they sent the girls home and these girls spread the laughter epidemic into their communities. So when you start to investigate this, both anthropologically and then also from a kind of medical and behavioral standpoint, I actually believe that this laughter epidemic was real. I think it was described in a hyperbolic way, to be honest. But what's fascinating is that there are versions of this that sprout up around the world, in the United States even. And what it seems to be is a case of what's called mass motor hysteria. And so this is a reaction to high-stress environments. It's often referred to as the cheerleader disease. So evidently, high school cheerleaders get this, which is a very like highly evaluative, stressful environment of this particular age range, young. And it, girls seem to be more susceptible than boys for some reason. But it doesn't usually manifest itself with laughter. It might be crying or fits or whatnot, but it does have this contagious effect where it does spread from people who are close to each other.
1: I was going to say this sounds like maybe some of what I've heard of tongues in the religious revivals.
0: I think that there are some connections to these kinds of social contagions, right? So we live with social contagions, although laughter is a contagious thing. If I laugh, you're likely to laugh or at least smile. Yawning has this. There's a lot of mimicry that happens in the world and so on. So, So it's not out of bounds that there would be some socially mediated behavioral contagions that happened yeah. this happened to be a very profound one and then had this mystique because there's like a paper in the british journal that oh, yeah. describes it from secondhand stories and interviews and so on
1: i just love that you got on a plane to go investigate firsthand it's yeah, like- we, yeah
0: we went <laughs> to the classroom and everything like we, were, awesome. we got a tour like this is the classroom where it started
1: That's great. So with all these, so part of what I love about your story is how you made a pretty significant pivot in your life and your work. And I know that many people feel stuck in life, but they don't necessarily know what to do or how to get unstuck. And as I see it from a removed perspective, it seems to me that you got yourself unstuck and you followed this path that is adding original thought to you know what we understand about ourselves and each other. So I wonder if you'd be willing to share what did you learn about what makes things funny?
0: Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I think that if I didn't have those insights, it just would have been self-indulgent. That is that I mean, I was happy to do these travels and to study and to do these things because it's personally enriching. Yep. And as a result, I have a much wider diverse group of friends and colleagues. Than I ever did before. I now collaborate with comedians and they're my friends. And so I'm beyond just like these boring professor types.
1: Is that as cool as it sounds? You know, these are fun people,
0: I will tell you. I will say the one thing I really appreciate about my comic friends, they really do think differently.
1: Yeah. Often they're very smart, but I remember I took an upper division class. I was an English major mm-hmm. and I took an upper division class about comedic film and it was titled comedy, the angry art form.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And I got
1: this view about how we often joke about the things that aren't socially acceptable to talk about, whether it's racial jokes or dead baby jokes. You know, religious jokes and things like this and how often and I look at so many of people that I certainly thought were funny as anything and that they either died by suicide or overdose and seeing how there does seem to be this often this very incisive, this very angry element or hey, things are messed up and I won't. Put up with it, and while I'm not going to go out and become an activist, I'm going to pick up a microphone and encourage people to think differently. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I would say that they see the world differently. the The best comics are kind of misfits. So, in my most recent book, I use this line that Jerry Seinfeld says: "Is that comics are humanoids? They're not aliens. They're not humans. They sit on that edge. They have enough knowledge to be dangerous, but they don't fit it in enough to just accept this yeah. is the way things are." Yeah. And so I see them as artists. I think they're a particular form of, of artist, for sure, to be, to be honest. So the idea and I, you know I really wish that I could do more with this idea, but I do think that it is a valuable insight and that is I feel very comfortable saying that Caleb and I have developed what I believe to be a really strong model that explains what makes things funny. Now, to step back for a moment and to give you some context When I stumbled onto this question, if you ask someone what makes things funny, you would have gotten a lesson that looks a little something like this. Well, brilliant. There are three types of theories that describe what makes things funny. There's dating back to Aristotle and Plato, superiority theory, that we laugh at the follies and foibles of others, where comedy is a game with winners and losers. There's release or relief theory, largely credited to Sigmund Freud, that says that humor is this escape valve where we get to talk about taboo things, or as you were saying, angry, our aggressiveness, or sexual risque kinds of thoughts come out in this sort of playful way. And then the 800-pound gorilla of humor theories is incongruity theory. So a variety of people like Immanuel Kant, lots and lots of people have talked about some mismatch between expectations and reality and then what they would say is well superiority theory explains this form of comedy very well and incongruity explains that form of comedy and so on and so forth now to me that doesn't make any sense like that violates a fundamental desire of science which is to seek parsimony is that to have three theories for a psychological experience doesn't make sense. You don't you don't have three theories of fear. Well we have this theory of fear for snakes and this theory of fear for public speaking. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, I was on the lookout for parsimony and found an inkling of that in a paper, a very like unknown paper by this guy, Thomas Veach, that served as the basis for our thinking.
1: Which he was by a, the way, a linguist. Oh, oh, you're a linguist. Okay. Because linguist. I went to his website and I was yes. like, who is this guy? He didn't he, really have a lot of about.
0: He's an interesting character. He is no longer in academia. But one of the beautiful things about Thomas Veach is that he's clearly a very smart fellow. And he wrote a paper that I thought was really profound. And then he was very early to the internet and he published the paper on the internet. And so I found it in a random Google search. In the way when I give my students a paper to write and they just Google the topic, I was doing a very similar thing at that stage. And I luckily found his paper. And then Caleb and I took those ideas, sprinkled in a bunch of psychology and then started testing them. And the idea is that... We tend to laugh at, be amused by, find funny, things that are wrong yet okay, things that are threatening yet safe, things that don't make sense yet make sense, what we call benign violations. And this benign violation approach is very useful because one is it does a good job of explaining what makes things funny across types of comedy. It does a very good job of explaining the two ways that a humor attempt can fail. It could be too benign and boring, or it could be just a violation and outrageous and upsetting. And it also explains why the very same joke can have all three of those effects. That one person can be laughing, another person can be yawning, and another person can be stamping their feet in outrage. And that is because what is wrong and what is okay, what is benign and what is a violation— depends on the audience's perspective, on their cultural values, societal norms, context. Are you in a church or are you in a comedy club? Mood, the number of drinks you've had, and so on and so forth. And so um, we find time and time again that this is a very useful model to explain puzzles, but it also is sort of an intuitively appealing puzzle. That's one of the things that I like about a lot of my comedy friends is they say, you know, I never thought about what made things funny before. I know what's funny. I know how to make funny, but I never thought why. And this does a pretty good job of explaining why.
1: So two questions on this. One is, do you find that this holds true across cultures?
0: Yes, it does. It actually not only holds true across cultures, it holds true across species. Really? Say more about that. So I think one of the most profound moments in my study of humor occurred when I had figured out that there was a scientist at Washington State University named Panskeep who would tickle rats and was able to show the tickling rats, not only do they emit this ultrasonic sound, this sort of chirping sound that is like the rat equivalent to laughter, but the tickling experience creates positive emotions in rats. And if you see the tickling and if it's described to you, you recognize very quickly that it's a benign violation, that it's a harmless attack. So what he does is, so one thing is rats are very social creatures mm-hmm. and they kind of get to know their captors, you know, in these labs and they're kind of comfortable with them. And so what he would do is he would go up to the cage, kind of stick his hand in and he sort of flip the rat over and kind of scratch its belly, you know, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. and they would make the sound while he was doing it but the really profound thing was after doing that for a little while he would move his hand to the other side of the cage and the rats would chase after the hand and almost try to put themselves underneath it to recreate this experience well anybody who has children nieces nephews whatever knows that you tickle the kid they have a fun they kind of resist and then you stop and then they kind of egg you on a little bit
1: don't get me don't get me that's right it's this (laughs)
0: titillating kind of experience Yep. well the evolutionary roots of humor (laughs) and laughter are in play fighting and tickling are in these kind of harmless physical attacks and they're part of a socialization process and so on but what happened i believe is that as and so we see this in chimps and monkeys and bonobos and and so on and they have laughter it's called play panting But what you can imagine from an evolutionary standpoint is comedy is just like play fighting with words. Yeah. Right? So as we started to gain language and societies, you started to have rules and these rules could be broken and it feels wrong to break rules. But if you can break a rule, but then also from another perspective, have it make sense, be okay, you can start to explain this now. The cultural differences that exist in comedy don't have to do with physiology. They have to do with the rules, right? In some cultures, it's okay to belch at the table. It's actually encouraged to belch at the table because it's an expression of appreciation for a fine meal. In others, it's disgusting to do that. It's uncouth to do that. But if you live in a culture where it's uncouth to do it and you visit a culture where it's okay to do it and you know it's okay to do it, it becomes pretty freaking hilarious when someone belches at the table.
1: Yep. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that too because I was going to ask if you would give an example of this to help because again, and I love what you opened your TED Talk with that EB White about dissecting a frog. Yes. So maybe you can share that thought, but then if you'd be willing to go beyond and give us an example of the benign violation theory, because as a theory, it sounds great, but how yeah, does- It's a little the, abstract. Yeah, a little abstract.
0: Yeah. So the EBY quote is basically like, studying comedy is a lot like dissecting a frog. What is I the think thing? It's, is the-
1: like very few people care.
0: Few people care and the frog dies of it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. And yeah. I do agree with that. Like, actually, I would say that there is a downside to the work that I've done, which is I just don't really like stand up comedy anymore. Really? In part because I find myself not enjoying it like an audience member enjoys it. I find myself watching it and anticipating and. Figuring out what he or she is doing on stage,
1: yeah. so, yep. occupational um, hazard, huh
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I can appreciate the artistry of it, but I have very rarely have a big belly laugh as a result yeah. of it. So I get that point, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. you know So I think that comedy creates enough joy in the world, but it also creates enough heartache and anger that we should at least understand what we're working with when we use it. Now, I'll give you another example of, let's talk about wordplay for a moment. Okay, so we've talked about like violating social norms. We talked about physical threats and pratfalls and stuff with the physical comedy and tickling and so on. These are harmless attacks. So imagine a situation where you go to the bakery and you tell your baker, he's got great buns. So that gets a snicker, it gets a laugh. It probably would get a laugh from him too in the sense of you have this misdirect well, you know a comic would call it misdirection. Mm-hmm. You know, it at first appears like a reference to his backside, but really it's about his bread products and it's a yeah. compliment. So you take this violation and you make it benign and you get the laugh. You tell a banker that he's got great buns. You don't get a laugh, you get a lawsuit. Yeah. You know, because there is nothing that makes that okay. You know, you need both of these appraisals in order to do this. And what comics do, or what anyone who's adept with comedy does, is they have good instincts and good experience to try to... It's why your point earlier is your experience is that funny people are often very bright. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of personality research on comics. That is the one thing that is certain, is that funny people, especially on the production side, tend to be smarter than average, in part because this is a skill that there is a intellectual, cognitive language, oftentimes, element to it. And so... It's not always easy to create this stuff but people who are adept sort of have good instincts by which to use these sort of techniques to create benign violations.
1: Interesting. Well, tell me if you will please about your latest book, Stick to Business: What the Masters of Comedy Can Teach You About Breaking the Rules, Being Fearless, and Building a Serious Career. Who did you write this book for and why?
0: Okay, so I wrote this book half for myself and half for I would say either people who are kind of stuck in their jobs and looking for a better life or people who are kind of entrepreneurial minded. Mm -hmm. So, I had a little bit of a puzzle at some point where I was still living my normal academic life by day and I was living this sort of exciting comedic life by night, you know. So I was teaching MBAs by day and I was decoding comedy by night. And I wanted to see if I could bring those two worlds together. So instead of keeping them separated, could I bring them together? And I think this is actually a good lesson. It actually comes up in Shtick to Business. And that is that if you want to be creative, very rarely is your first thought the creative thought. So I define creativity as an original appropriate solution. That is, you solve a problem and you do it in a way that's novel, that other people aren't solving that problem.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Easy. It's an easy, easy definition. So... Obviously, you have to have both of those things to be highly rewarded in the world. If you're solving a problem the same way that everyone else is, then it's just whoever does it at the lowest price wins. If you solve it in a way that is novel, however, then life gets interesting. And so my first premise, let's say, was, well, I'll write a book about how to get ahead by being funny. This is a highly valued skill. We like funny people. We like them in our personal life. We actually like them in our professional life too. There's a variety of evidence for why being adept with comedy can help you get ahead, can help you be more persuasive, more likable, more approachable, and so on. And I even started to pursue this, but I never felt comfortable with the message.
1: It seems to me like that could be laden with pitfalls. (laughs) Right, about going and just be funny. But by the way, and I'd love to, because you mentioned there's a variety of things that show I wanna get your view on this, while we're just on this topic. I've heard that one of the things that humor signals to others is confidence. Mm -hmm. So I've heard whoever uses humor controls a meeting, generally, for better or worse. (laughs) But people look to that person.
0: Yes. The issue, brilliant, though, is that that's half the story. So some research coming out of Penn recently that was based on the benign violation theory does reveal your intuition is correct, is that leaders who use jokes— make jokes are seen as more confident and that makes good sense because people intuitively know that comedy has risks right you know and this is why i started to think i shouldn't tell a ballroom full of 500 or a thousand people to go forth and be funny and the reason is we've got to worry about that guy
1: Right. You know, always. The, always designing for that guy. The memos get written guy. for that guy, <laughs> you know?
0: Yes, exactly. The guy who thinks he's funny. Right. And and the idea essentially is that the downside and the cost of not being funny is even greater than the upside of being funny. Yeah. And so what I do is now I have like a group of people who, who are skilled and then they use that skill more and benefit. And then you have a group of people who are under skilled they use that skill more and then they make the workplace less good. Yeah. And so that study that I was telling you about out of the University of Pennsylvania also finds that leaders who use jokes and aren't funny are seen as less competent. Hmm. So it's this confidence competent dichotomy. And so really What the message has to be is this, go forth and try to be funny and make sure you succeed. And that's hard to do. It takes professional comics 10 years to get good at their craft. So they're succeeding regularly and they're still behind the scenes failing a whole bunch. And so that first premise, I just was like, I can't do this. It's not Mm. good for the world for me to do this. I'm actually going to hurt people by encouraging them and their peers to
1: be funny. So let me just jump in and ask this. So the creative process is a messy process often, right? And it's having a sense you want to do something, but not necessarily knowing how, like you're saying you want to merge these two worlds, the academic and this comedic moonlighting, so to speak. And so you're going down a path, you have an idea, but then your intuition and your reason is saying, "Mm, kind of in the right direction, but not quite right. So this is the question. That was all a long way of setting up this question. How long before the book was actually published was it your intention to write this book? And where okay. did this pivot, this shift in kind of approach come?
0: Well, after I wrote my first book, co-wrote my first book, people would ask me, what's your next book? And I, my response was, I'm never writing another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is related to your previous question about, you know, who did I write this book for? When I hit on the idea for Stick to Business, I knew I was going to write a book. And the reason was, that I felt like I had ideas that were going to truly be beneficial for the world. And I knew that I would be pissed off if someone wrote the book before me. Mm. Like I knew, you know, like there's this thing about don't die with the music inside you. Yep. I suddenly had music inside me. But before that, I wasn't, I was like, no, I'm not going to write another book. I wrote a book. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I wrote one, did that onto something else. But once I had the idea, I was like, oh, I have to write this book. Mm. And I would say things happen very fast. The idea hit me. So I guess we should say what the idea behind the book is for your listeners. Yes, please. Which is, the book is not about being funny. The book is about thinking funny. Is how do we take the practices and the perspectives of these incredibly creative, innovative individuals and translate them into lessons that everyday people can use to live richer, better professional lives. So it's not about... The end goal being funnier, but the end goal being a better thinker, to be more creative, to better manage your career, and so on. And the idea behind it essentially is boy, these folks have a really tough job. Boy, they make it look really easy. That can't all be intuition. There must be ways that they go about doing their work. And I am the only person who can translate those because I know both the business side of things, the behavioral side of things. And the comedy side of things. And so it would have really upset me not only if someone wrote the book before me, but if they didn't do as good a job as I thought I could do. Yeah. And so things started to move very, very quickly once I hit that idea. I hit that idea. I gave a talk on it. It was one of the better received business talks that I ever gave. I gave it to a group of salespeople at Google. And to be honest, I started giving the talk. That's how I started. I started giving a talk, and it was, The best talk I've ever given in terms of for that kind of audience. Mm -hmm. Everything before that, I was kind of trying to fit a a square peg into a round hole. And so then the research just started to blossom. And I just everywhere I looked, I started seeing this. And so I think from idea to publication of the book was two and a half years. Very fast. Yeah. Very, very fast. So that was good. And it was fun. Actually, I, you know, a lot of people, you talk to people about, you know, what was it like writing the book? They're just like, oh my God, it was, it just nearly killed me, you know? Yeah. I'm lucky. I didn't have that. I had a good experience writing the book.
1: I would imagine, and you can correct me, but part of that, being, it was the synthesis of two things you were looking to bring together. Yes. Part of it was the subject matter, but I think anything we're passionate about or that we're eager to share with others, you know, it will have that sense, help us have flow and meaning and enjoyment. But the fact you had a co-writer as well, it seems like. Well, that that was was for the first one. Oh, well, maybe not a co-writer, but who's the
0: gentleman? Oh, yes, that's right. I had, I did have help, Yes. So that's worth mentioning. So, you know, a book about humor should be funny. Yeah. And so I worked hard to try to make my bits funny, but I have a very good friend Shane Moss, who's a stand-up comic and science communicator. I do science about comedy. He does comedy about science. Mm-hmm. And so we became friends about nine years ago or so. And I invited him to be a special contributor to the book. So we have these little breakout sections called Shtick with Shane, where Shane gives a comics perspective on the lessons. In the book anecdotes and stories and so on and he's pretty funny and he has that he takes what's often a little bit abstract and he makes it very real and that was fun to work with him on that yes
1: yeah it was fun for me to hear both of your voices Mm -hmm. in the book and he
0: teases me a lot in the book too
1: yeah (laughs) it's fun so when this started i understand you had basically like 21 things but the book ended up being seven chapters Boy, you really did your homework. I'm impressed. Well, I'm really interested in what you're doing and I like it a lot. But I wonder in all of this, and I love also how you shared organically where your speaking was really both the refinement, but the expression Mm -hmm. of these ideas and things like that. As it has gone through that, that two and a half year drafting process and all the sharing and all this, what have you found has really landed most with your audience? What have people been able to receive and apply Or what have they enjoyed the most of what you've been sharing?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, the lesson behind the 21 lessons and then it turning into a 14, excuse me, a seven chapter book is, I think that's a good thing for people who are aspiring to make things to hear, Mm -hmm. you know, is that I had this sort of vision as a very slim book of like thousand word chapters, 21, 1000 word chapters. You know, it's sort of like, I thought of it as kind of like a toilet bowl book right? It's the kind of book where you read a chapter while you're taking a dump. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) that kind of thing. And then I read one of those books and it just left me so unfulfilled. And so what I decided, I was going to write a book that felt light, it felt breezy, but it had some meat to it. And then what I realized was some of my lessons were big and some of them were small and some of them were strong and some of them were weak. Mm -hmm. And so then what I did was I got rid of all the weak lessons and I kept seven strong lessons and, excuse me, seven big lessons and seven small lessons. So I have these mini lessons in between the chapters. And so I think that this sort of act of creation is important, which is like there is a sort of fumbling around Mm -hmm. that often happens. I will tell you this, those mini lessons at one point were part of the chapters. And I had a moment where I was trying to edit and make sense of a chapter. And I just realized how it didn't fit. And I was like, I either have to get rid of these or put them somewhere else. And I had this moment where I go, Oh, what if I put them in between the chapters again, like a palate cleanser, like a little, you know? And as soon as I did that, it all just came together. Wow! You know, the chapters got better, the book became a little bit more diverse and interesting, and was more fluent and so on. I'm afraid I forgot the full part of your question. Well, it
1: was also was about um, oh, the big what do people find valuable or yeah, resonates with. I'll
0: give you two. And one of them I think we'll save for the later in the podcast because I think it's more relevant to what you want to talk about. So the first one okay. is is actually chapter one. So chapter one is a little bit of an unusual chapter because it's kind of a case study. And chapter one is called Reverse It. And it's about this comedy 101 technique of the reversal or producing an opposing perspective. And This is something that people like because they can immediately start to use it. So a lot of comedy is based on taking the thing that everybody thinks and then going in the opposite direction. So I open that chapter with a story about Chris Rock, the stand-up comedian in his Netflix special Tambourine, does a bit in which he talks about how bullies are good, right? So we all can agree bullies are bad, but he points out the ways that bullies are good and he does a very hilarious Bit that's highly appreciated by his audience. He argues that bullies help us prepare for a tough life. Teachers do half the work, bullies do the other half the work. You see it in like one liners. So Henny Youngman, the king of the one liners, says that when he read about the dangers of drinking, he gave up reading. Reading, exactly. (laughs) Right. So the reversal, you know? Yeah. And so it's a great way to create comedy comedic movies are based upon reversals as premises, trading places in the eighties with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, right? So you have the wealthy wall street banker and the street hustler change roles, you know, freaky Friday, et cetera, right? These are, so reversals are all over the world of comedy. What's very interesting is that the average person doesn't think in reverse. The average business doesn't think in reverse, but there's opportunity in thinking in reverse. When everybody's zigging and you zag, there's opportunity. For example, these two Brooklyn-based entrepreneurs are trying to compete in the smartphone market. Well, how do you outsmart Apple and Samsung? You know, teams of engineers and, and decades of experience. Yeah, you can't. So what these guys did was they did the reverse and they created the dumb phone, the dumb phone, right? So this is not for people who want to be more connected, but rather for people who want to be less connected. And so there's often, as I like to say, blue ocean when you reverse course that's there. And then I have a technique that I teach and I have actually a workbook that you can download off my website where you can do what I call shit storming, which is brainstorming bad ideas. And there's a variety of benefits of brainstorming bad ideas. One is it gets the creative juices flowing. It kind of overcomes the natural reluctance that we have with brainstorming in general because we self-censor, we edit. Yep. And then it's fun. We lean into it more. It's kind of a good warm-up for brainstorming. And then the last thing is sometimes when you're brainstorming truly awful, terrible ideas, someone goes, hold on a second. That's so crazy. It just <laughs> might work. Yeah. And so I think that thinking in reverse won't always guarantee a good idea, but it's a useful way for the average person, especially when you're stuck, especially when you're in a competitive environment, especially when everybody's doing the same thing. You can fight the status quo with a reversal.
1: Yeah, there really is, I think, a genius in that. And like you're saying with shitstorming, where it can take the pressure off, right? And all of a sudden it just opens up possibility, the permission to look at things in new ways. I remember once hearing that part of the value of just generating a lot of ideas in a brainstorming session is that bad ideas often lead to good ideas. Oh,
0: ah, yes. I'm glad you brought that up because I mentioned my first premise. So one of the lessons, it's a mini lesson, the book is called Third Thoughts. Uh-huh. And we tend to think about creativity as these sort of flashes of brilliance that happen, these moments that come out of nowhere. And indeed, that is often the case that when you noodle on something and you have lots of expertise and you work on it, you're in the shower and you have your idea. But some of a creative process is you just bang on the thing over and over again. You come up with many, many, many solutions. Yep. And as you go on, the more you work on it, the more likely the solution you come up with is going to be novel. Yeah. And so Lauren Michaels at Saturday Night Live will often critique a sketch idea and say, that's a first premise idea. That's Mm -hmm. the same idea the audience would have. You need to Mm -hmm. work on this further. And and so sometimes it's just good to remind people not to settle on the, it may be an appropriate solution, but your first solution is rarely original.
1: Yeah. I read something about Pixar released its rules for writing and they Mm -hmm. say that same kind of thing in there. I think, I don't know if theirs was seventh, but it was like your first six or never.
0: (laughs) Rarely. Yeah, it's rarely rarely, the case. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You know what I mean? But I think, so I will tell you this, I have in that same workbook, I have this exercise you do where you, you have to come up with a hundred ideas. Wow. Right. And, you know, and so you can actually print out the sheets and you fill in a 10 by 10 grid with all of your ideas. And, you know, I mean, like that seems crazy to do. But if you let yourself have fun with it and you know that only one of them has to be great yep. and six might be good, you know, and the rest are trash, you need the trash to get to the great yep. and you need to be willing to look past the good to get to the great.
1: Yeah. There's so much in that. And part of what's cool to me about this too, is that it's very doable. Like it's a procedure. It's a process. Yes. Can take a team through, you can go through it on your own.
0: Absolutely. You know. Yeah, this is not magic. Yeah. It's not magic. It's, it's actually, definitely. I mean, it's also not factory work. It's like it sits in this place. It's a creative endeavor. It should be fun, but it should be challenging. There should be rules, but you should ultimately looking to break rules. Like it's that artistic space. I think that a lot of people who fail to realize that.
1: Do you know the work of Byron Katie? She's in the personal growth and spirituality mm-hmm. worlds.
0: I know the name. You'd have to jog my memory, though.
1: Yeah. I wonder because as I hear this as a technique in business or when approaching a creative problem, she teaches something similar, which she'll call the turnaround. Okay. Where it's when we find ourselves believing something that's not serving us, like my wife is a jerk. Okay. And then she gives us three different ways to turn it around. Like, what if I'm a jerk? What oh, yeah, that's not great. Not a jerk. What if? Yeah. Right. And it's interesting the freedom that can come from very methodically working through something like that.
0: I think that's great. I think the reversal exists in many different forms in many different areas. So. There's this guy, Jocko Willink. You can find him. He wrote a book about leadership. The name escapes uh, extreme me Extreme right ownership. Now. Extreme ownership. You know, he's this yeah. burly, you know, tough guy kind of thing. He has this saying about good. I don't know if you've come across yeah. this, but that when YouTube something video. bad happens, he yeah, says, good. good, right? Like <laughs> twist your ankle. Good. More time to work on other, you know, time to work on my upper body strength project delayed, good, extra time to prepare. Like whatever that situation is, he finds a way to find the good in it. That's a form of reversal, I think.
1: Yeah. And it's powerful, right? It's a choice in some way to look for. And as we know, when you seek, often you find. So Indeed. That's powerful. Let me shift with your permission to the enlightening lightning round, and then we can come back to the other idea and maybe close with that.
0: Yeah. You probably know what it is, but that's good.
1: Well, I look forward to hearing <laughs> it directly from you and okay. sharing with listeners. So, okay. How you doing, by the way? You doing okay? Great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know we're getting close to our time here, so... I'll uh, make
0: it a little more punchy.
1: Okay. And you're doing great. I just want to honor that time thing. This lightning round is a series of brief questions that you're welcome to answer as long as you want. But for my part, my aim is to ask the question and stand aside. Okay. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than A box of chocolates. Life is like a... It's
0: like a menu at Cheesecake Factory.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on?
0: That the path to living a good life is to create a family.
1: Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: Today's a big day.
1: I love that. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Ah, there's a book by David Schwartz. It's written in the 60s. It's very Dale Carnegie-esque, but it's called The Magic of Thinking Big. And I think that book... Is a useful starting point for the average person who wants to do something with their lives. I think that you need to first start to think big before you can act big.
1: Mm, Awesome. Maybe it's because I'm reading it now, but and I've read that book and I love that book. But I want to pair the magic of thinking big with BJ Fogg's Tiny Habits. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing that's missing from the magic of thinking big is what to do with those ideas. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you get to the end, you're like, okay, what do I do next? And Schwartz is like, it's up to you. Good luck.
1: (laughs) Yeah. If you can dream it, you can do it. That's right. It's not enough
0: to just dream it, but you need to dream it first.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Question number five. And this is, this is the pre pandemic, the good old days. It's a question about travel. Okay. (laughs) So you've traveled a lot. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: Okay. So I have purchased a little mini speaker for my travels and it's because I like music and you're spending a lot of time in hotel rooms and it's fun to be able to play music as you are unpacking, as you're showering, as you're kind of spending a little bit of time in that space. And, and you know, hotel rooms want to be quiet so they don't have sound systems in them. And so I bring a little sound
1: system with me. Right on. Okay. Thank you for that. Music is so important.
0: I mean, I, yeah, it's just such a nice way to change the mood.
1: Yep. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: I've never been a big drinker, so I didn't drink till I was 25. Drinking is fun, but as a 50-year-old, I rarely drink anymore. And I rarely drink anymore, not because it has ceased to be fun, but because the downsides now outweigh the upsides. The next morning, I have things I want to do. That's my creative time, Mm -hmm. and the alcohol gets in the way of that. I don't sleep as well as I used to. The alcohol gets in the way of that. And I like to remain lean and fit. And the alcohol gets in the way of that. People don't think about this, but you're basically drinking sugar. And I have this thing where I'm trying to eliminate sugar from my life as a metaphor. And so so obviously, sugar, sugar. But then sugar like video games and social media and sports spectating, all of these things I believe have a very similar profile, which is pleasurable in the moment, but either have no long-term benefits or actually negative long-term benefits. So I am on the lookout to remove the sugars from my life. The one that I'm working a little bit more on these days is social media and the problem with me with social media is that it doesn't fully meet the criteria yeah there's still long-term benefits of some social media stuff
1: yeah for
0: sure but i'm pulling it back rather than eliminating it
1: right on okay thank you for that question number seven what's one thing you wish every american knew
0: right now germ theory (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'll add something else that's less cheeky. I wish every American knew algebra. Why? You know, it's the only math you really, really need. You know, you don't really need calculus as an average everyday person. But to understand numbers and the basics of algebra sets up a lot of other things. It helps you understand, like, how important a denominator is, for example, which we're seeing. That's a real problem with the pandemic. We're getting lots and lots of information where you get numerators, but you need denominator. You need to be able to divide things. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. Number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work?
0: I think that the most important thing about making relationships work is to recognize that they are a collaboration, they're not a competition. And so I'll talk friendships because friendships work best because it's like, what do you look for in a friend? You look for someone who has integrity, someone who's reliable, and someone who's energizing. But for a relationship to work, you need to have high integrity, be reliable, and be energizing. Yeah. And so it's a collaboration between the two of you to have those three things. The fourth one Jordan Peterson talks about is that a good friend will celebrate your successes and will commiserate on your failures and won't try to outdo you on those things, they don't view this relationship as a competition as a result. So I like that idea of we're a team.
1: I like that. I like that a lot. If I had that perspective, my first marriage might've worked. (laughs) Honestly, we were very competitive and that doesn't, it's tough. it, It is tough. It was tough for me. Okay. Question number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it?
0: I don't know if I have a great answer for that one. I'll be honest. Oh, I think the issue is that money is a tool. So you have to understand why money is important to you. And so early in our life, money is about survival. It's about keeping a roof over your head and your body nourished and yourself safe. But if you're lucky, you're good, and you manage to get enough of it, then you can start making it work for you beyond survival and that it can be a path to freedom and opportunity that then it can truly help enrich your life. It can move you from avoiding bad into moving towards good. So it's a tool.
1: You know, that's exactly what my dad said. He said, remember, you know, he died 11 years ago, but before he did, he was very, very successful business person. And he said, money is nothing but numbers on paper and a tool for doing good. Mm, Lovely. So right in line with that. Okay. And then this question, of course, the listener will have heard some of your, I'll make sure to put your web address too, because it's petermcgrod.org, right? It is, in, yes. In the intro. But if people want to learn more from you or if they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
0: I mean, I think the best place is to go to petermcgrod.org. You can find out about my books and my podcast. Stick to Business is on Amazon in Audible, soft cover, and ebook. And you can find me on some of the social media. I'm on Twitter a little bit, LinkedIn, barely on the Insta, but you know, I'm happy to connect with people out there.
1: Okay, great. And then as an expression of my gratitude to you for sharing so generously of your time and and your experience, I have gone on kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I have made a hundred dollar micro loan to an entrepreneur named Gladys in Kenya, who will use this money to buy a motorbike that she will then use to transport her farm products to the market. Brilliant. So, That's wonderful. I'm wow. so happy to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So with that, the last question, maybe we could go back to that other about what else have people found really valuable from this stick to business and the work you've been doing lately?
0: Yeah, sure. I have a good friend. She was an early reader of the book. So I had four people read a draft of the book of Stick to Business. And two of them were like super critical and two of them were super encouraging. And so it was a perfect balance, you know, to make it better and to feel good about it. And she said to me, she's like, I've read 200 business books in my career. And I've never read a business book that talks about writing. And so I have a chapter in the book called Write It or Regret It, in which I say the most valuable tool that a comic has is not a microphone. It's a notebook. And I talk about the comedian's writing process. And with the exception of improv, all good comedy comes from writing. And I think that writing is a secret skill that successful people have and use. And I'll briefly talk about the three ways that writing benefits. So the first one is that it is a way to remember. It's a record keeping process. And so I have a journal now. I wish I had started the journal when I was 13 years old. It becomes a useful tool to be able to revisit what you were thinking and what you were doing at some previous point and giving you a lot of good perspective. It's also just a place, if you get into a writing practice, to house ideas. And to be able to keep those ideas because otherwise they just flitter away. They're ephemeral. The second is the act of writing allows you to clarify your thinking in a way that I think is really quite important. So it's easy to have loose thoughts, but it's not easy to have loose writing. And so writing forces you to a level of precision that you can figure out the goodness or the badness of your ideas. And so I talk about the beauty of the one pager. Any big project I do, I write a one pager. So when Stick to Business came to mind, after I had given that initial talk, I immediately started working on the one pager. In that workbook that I mentioned, I have the one pager that I wrote. If you read that one pager, you see the book it's a snapshot of the book. It makes writing the book easier. And then the last one is that one pager or that clarifying writing that you do can easily turn into writing that you use to communicate to the world. You can share ideas with with the world. And so it goes from being an internal tool and then it becomes an external tool. And I think that like there are certain phrasings and ideas that I wrote in that one pager that was just (laughs) meant for myself that eventually I used it to pursue lit agents, The ideas actually get written word for word in the book and so on. And so writing is a challenging endeavor, but it has this highly rewarding benefit both to the individual and to the
1: world. Yeah, for sure. What's that about? A single drop of ink can cause a million to think.
0: Ah, I've never heard that. I like it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you talked a moment ago in the enlightening lightning round about giving up or moderating your use of alcohol because of it in addition to other reasons its adverse impact on your creative routine the next day in the morning will you tell us about your creative routine what's that like and how fastidiously how meticulously do you observe it or honor it
0: yeah so i have a morning routine i've started about 12 years ago it has had a life-changing effect on me i'm up pretty early i'm an early riser i'm up i brush my teeth drink a bunch of water get dressed. And I'm as quickly as I can, typically in a coffee shop or cafe. And this doesn't matter if it's in my hometown or if I'm in Milan or if I'm in Dubai, I'm looking for a place that's outside of the home, but also outside of the workplace where I can have a delicious cappuccino and a healthy breakfast. And I can, initially it was right. Now I call it creative work more generally because sometimes I work on my podcast and other ideas there. But initially, it was writing, mostly writing academic papers and working on books. But that time is sacred. So I don't take meetings. I don't take podcasts. I don't go to the dentist. I protect that time and I make it a regular part of thing. I like to do it every single day if I can. And I do it anywhere between 45 minutes and four hours, depending on the day, depending on the timing, depending on the flow, you know, depending on a lot of things. And that's where I'm at my best. I'm peak energy. I'm peak creativity and it's like i'm shot out of a cannon and i just i love that time i actually tried to deviate from it at a couple times in the last 10 years and it made me miserable so oh. now it's not even something i have to choose to do it's something i'm compelled to do yeah and it makes my life better
1: that's awesome that's great what prompted the implementation of this morning routine 12 years ago.
0: You know what it was, was I had realized that I was a terrible writer and that I was going to need to get better if I was going to succeed as an academic. So I was an assistant (laughs) professor and it didn't look like tenure was going to happen for me if I continued doing what I was doing. And so I did something that I have a tendency to do is I researched the topic. So I read a bunch of books on writing and I read a bunch of blog posts on writing. And there were a couple of things that came through, which is that not all, but most elite writers and actually most elite creatives. So there's a really wonderful book called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry.
1: Yeah, how artists work. I love that book.
0: Yes. And is that they sequester themselves typically early in the day. Writers tend to have a cup of coffee. I didn't even drink coffee at that time. I started drinking coffee because oh. I was just like, well, if it works for all these people, yeah, it must work. Right. And so I all I did was I just started behaving like an elite writer behaves. And I remember like the first day doing I first of all I didn't do coffee, I did green tea. And I just remember it was hell. You know what I mean? I, like it just did not feel good at all. But like many things in life, I did it over and over again. And it then became not bad. And then eventually it became good. And then it just became essential.
1: Wow. That's amazing. I love that. And I love what's in there about the power of awareness to see that you weren't on track for the future that you wanted for yourself, the power of decision and commitment. And Mm -hmm. and there's so much in that that I think is inspiring. And I hope people listening see those things as well and possibilities for themselves in that.
0: Yeah, I have an entire chapter built around these ideas called work hard or hardly work. And it's idea of this in Mason Curry's book is that these folks work very hard and then they release themselves and do more pleasurable social activities after they've taken care of their creative work.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I also, one of the things that that's impressed on me, Mason's book, is also that A, I think these people were working in their zone of genius. So they Mm. really were working with their strengths and their talents. And then B, the power of consistency, where some of them worked for only two or three hours a day, but they did it for decades.
0: Yes, it's crazy. We think of people working 12 hours a day, but you're better off working Two hours a day, seven days a week, then 14 hours in one day. Right. I agree.
1: There's a lot to that. Okay. So there's so much more. And I know it might not be on your horizon now, or maybe it is. But Peter, I, I want to have you back on the show sometime. And I hope it's with your next book, whenever that happens to be.
0: Sure. When, I'm starting to work on it. I knew it. I knew it. And uh <laughs>
1: And there's so much more I want to ask you about when we have that conversation. I want to understand more about your work with the morals lab. Also, Uh I want to see, I don't talk much with people about the trolley problem, but that's one of the most fascinating things Ah. I want to ask you about. I understand you were mentored by Kahneman. So there's plenty more plus what your book will be. So if you're open to it, maybe we can keep that open as a possibility.
0: Yeah, that'd be my pleasure. I will say this. Your audience must really appreciate you because your attention to detail is extraordinary.
1: Well, thanks. Like I said, I love to learn. I think your work is really interesting. I really do believe the world is a better place because you're doing what you're doing. I know we all want to make a difference and it can seem really abstract, but when you put effort behind an intention as you are, I think that it not only does a lot of good, but it is inspiring for people and I want to share people's work who are doing that. Thank so, you. Okay. Well, thanks again. Brilliant. Thanks so much. It's great to meet you. Likewise. See ya. Cheers. Bye. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing. I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at bryant at or by visiting goodliving.com.